Hello, and welcome to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how these might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In today's episode, titled Fantasy, Romance, and Self-Destruction in Madame Bovary, I speak with philosopher, poet, and literary critic, Troy Jollimore, about Gustave Flaubert's famous 19th century novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ridiculously excited to have Troy Jollimore on the podcast this morning. Troy is professor of philosophy at Cal State Chico, a literary critic at large, and an award-winning poet. Troy is author of three books of poetry and three books of philosophy, including a wonderful book on love titled Love's Vision, which came out in 2011 from Princeton University Press. Additionally, Troy has written numerous articles, essays, and reviews in a variety of publications. His first collection of poetry, Tom Thompson in Purgatory, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2006, and his third collection, which is my personal favorite, Syllabus of Errors, appeared on the New York Times list of the best books of poetry in 2015. Troy Jollimore, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for getting up so early to talk with me about Flaubert. So I was giddy, actually, when you chose Madame Bovary to discuss for the podcast, because it's one of my favorite novels. In my mind, anyway, it's probably one of the contenders for best novel of all time. I suspect, though, that many of our listeners might not be familiar with Flaubert or his novels, so maybe we can start there. Can you tell us a little something about who Flaubert was, his time and context, and what draws you to the story of Madame Bovary? Gustave Flaubert was one of the most significant French writers of the 19th century, and in particular, uh, one of the most significant novelists. In fact, he's often credited with inventing the modern novel. For novelists, there was before Flaubert and there was after Flaubert. You know, he just changed everything and he changed the possibilities of what could be done. Madame Bovary is his best known book. It was written between about 1850 and, and 1856, became notorious because as a result of the book, he was put on trial for uh, immorality. He barely escaped being convicted, but of course it made the book famous. And so when it was published in book form, a little later on, it was a big bestseller, you know, and very big success. What was the problem, really? And obviously, these judgments are historically contextualized, but it's not a racy novel, and it's sort of moralistic. I mean, she has adulterous affairs, but it doesn't work out. It certainly doesn't work out. One wouldn't read the book as an endorsement of infidelity or anything of the sort. So what's the deal with it being banned? I don't think we can could even begin to understand that without saying, as you said, uh, these judgments are so time-bound. To contemporary readers, it's hard for us to understand how this book could be considered immoral at all. But in that context, any discussion of infidelity, the mere acknowledgement that there was such a thing, essentially, was in itself immoral. Even if you went on to condemn it, that wasn't enough. 
he's also written a number of other books, of course, although he was a very slow writer because he was a perfectionist. So it wasn't a huge number. He labored very hard to make every sentence and every word perfect. And, uh, you know, when we use that phrase now, le mot juste, right, the right word, the just word or whatever, that largely comes from Flaubert. Everything had to be perfect for him. And he, aesthetic perfection and beauty on every page and every sentence even, even was the, the standard he held himself. Right. And of course, he's writing in French, which reminds me that I should say the translation that we're using, which I think has become the, the standard translation these days, is the translation by Lydia Davis. Yeah, we should definitely say that because it's such a fine translation and she does such amazing work. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. So in terms of the book itself, we've already said, in a sense, what it's about. It's about infidelity. It's about, as you could guess from the title, uh, Madame Bovary, Emma Bovary, and uh, she marries Charles Bovary, who is a country doctor. The book begins with Charles. So it doesn't begin with Emma. She comes into it shortly into it. Uh, And the book does not end with Emma. And it's kind of an interesting choice on Flaubert's part, because clearly the book is the story of Emma. So it's Emma's story. You could say it's the story of their marriage, but really it's Emma's story. And during the course of their marriage, which uh, she begins regretting to a degree almost immediately after getting married to him, just because she finds him incredibly boring and annoying. And he really is presented as kind of mediocre and not very interesting and a failure in some ways and so on, which, which doesn't seem to bother him at all. He's fine with all of that as far as we can tell, but she's not fine with it. And for that and various other reasons, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, she embarks on a couple of adulterous affairs, one being with kind, kind of a, a cad, you know, a player named Rudolf, and, or Rudolf probably is the right pronunciation, and then uh, another with uh, a, a clerk named uh, Leon. So uh, those are her two affairs, ending very badly, largely because partly in connection with the affairs and partly for other reasons, she also spends a lot of money. Essentially, she spends not only all of her husband's money, but more money than they have. So she gets them deeply into debt, which there's no recovery. And of course, famously, the her story ends with her committing suicide by taking arsenic. To be a little fair to Emma, is it so much that she seeks out these affairs or she kind of just doesn't doesn't really resist them because i'm thinking with leon at first she's resisting and she's sort of proud in a not morally admirable way because she's proud that she is sticking with her boring uninteresting husband even though she clearly sees that he's romantically interested in her and there are these great passages where she's sort of admiring her own virtue, which of course is the first sign that she's not actually virtuous. And then with Rodolphe, he is a player and he definitely is going after her. I mean, he sees that she's vulnerable. In fairness, I think that is right. That's a quite accurate description that we should say, first of all, that although uh, Leon is the first one she develops feelings for, and they have what we would now call an emotional affair, they don't actually consummate it. At that time, he moves away, and it's Rodolphe who is the first one. So, so Rodolphe is the one who then swoops in and seduces her, and they actually have sex, a, a genuine full-blown affair. And absolutely, I agree with you that in that case, Rodolphe is clearly the seducer. Uh, that is not something she is seeking out. In fact, Flaubert describes how he meets her, finds her attractive, says that uh, she has a Parisian figure, for instance, and decides immediately, I I will have her. I will figure out a way to have her and begins strategizing and scheming. Yeah, no, he's such a jerk. 
It, he's terrible. Yeah. And, and he's done this many times before as well. This is a serial uh, affairer. I want to go back just a bit to sort of how Emma came to be Madame Bovary in the first place. So she she's a farm girl and she's she's out in the country and her father, he needs a doctor. And Charles Bovary shows up, who at the time is married to someone else. And that, of course, is significant. <laughs> it is, because you said, you know, it's a novel about adultery. But the first adulterous love of the novel, it's not Emma's, it's Charles. So Charles sort of falls for Emma while he's still married to this other woman. I think like all marriages at the time, it was kind of a marriage of convenience. Uh, but Charles gets lucky and his wife dies. <laughs> and then... So conveniently, yes. <laughs> yes. The line that Flaubert uses at that point is when she dies. She says, oh my God, she sighed and she lost consciousness. And then Flaubert writes, she was dead. How astonishing it was. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, he, he, he ushers her off stage and she's gone now in the most convenient way. Right. And yeah, Charles is free because it was a very unhappy marriage, as you know, probably so many were, because as you say, most of them were marriages of convenience. Right, exactly. So his wife dies, thereby releasing him from the bonds and obligations of marriage. And now he's free to pursue Emma, who I'm assuming is quite young. We do learn a little bit about Emma prior to becoming Madame Bovary, when she's unmarried and still living with her parents. Yes. Well, in particular, I mean, it was largely a religious upbringing. There are clearly at least two sources of the ideas that Emma has about romantic love and marriage and such things, and these ideas that will turn out to be so destructive and disastrous as, as the novel proceeds. And one of them is religion and the other one, even more seriously, I think, is the romantic novels and sort of pop culture of the day that she had absorbed. And she had gotten these various ideas about love that it was supposed to be, of course, first of all, earth-shaking, momentous event, which would sweep in more or less like a, a tornado and just upheave everything, essentially. And also, she expects a perfect lover to be able to essentially read her mind and know exactly what she's thinking all the time and what she wants. And one, one of the great disappointments that she has with Charles is that he can't do that, and he doesn't know what she's thinking. For part of it, I can't remember how long, but for part of her upbringing, she's in a convent in Paris. And it's in this convent that we're sort of told about this spinster who comes in, she's somehow under the protection of the convent. She's really feeding Emma, all of this romantic, sentimental stuff. So she talks about how she knew by heart the love songs of the century before. She would tell stories and give the girls novels about love, lovers, paramours, persecuted ladies, fainting in lonely pavilions, gloomy forests, troubled hearts, oaths, sobs, tears, kisses, skiffs by moonlights, nightingales in groves, gentlemen brave as lions, gentle as lambs, virtuous as no one ever is. And it also talks about how she has this obsession and a kind of veneration for ill-fated women, which I think be becomes crucial at, at the end of the novel. Flaubert writes that these women, you know, stood out like comets against the shadowy immensity of history. This, this is kind of foreshadowing Emma's own fate. She's kind of internalizing this very sentimental 
and extremely emotional vision of kind of romantic or romanticized life that she seems to want for herself. That's exactly right. A couple things we can say about Emma that relate to this are that, first of all, she is, the right word here, or the right phrase is not self-aware because Emma is very non-self-aware and that's part of her problem. But she views herself from the outside a lot of the time. And she is constantly thinking of herself in terms of playing or fulfilling some image or role. And so, for instance, there are moments when, when she becomes uh, somebody's mistress and so on, she thinks to herself, I am a mistress. Uh, or I am a lover, I have a lover. Right? She'll say these things to herself as if it's not enough to be doing it. it. I have to remind myself and picture myself because, of course, now I'm putting myself up among that gallery of figures that some of whom you've listed. And so in this early education, including and perhaps especially during her time at the convent, it's very clear that she is looking for these images. She's looking for roles that she can play. She wants to know who can I be in this life? So she spent time in this Catholic convent in Paris, and just this little tidbit, um, so every night at dinner, she eats off of plates that depict the story of Mademoiselle de Lavalier. I had to look this up, but she was the secret lover of King Louis XIV. She bore him five illegitimate children. Now, she eventually repented of her behavior, joins a convent, and ends up spiritually advising the queen. But this is another example of how her early life is permeated. I mean, even the dinner plates uh, that she's eating off of are, are all glorifying religion and refined sentiments and these fantastic affairs and the splendors of the court and, and all of it. Her mind and her passions are shaped uh, very early on in a, in a fantastical but clearly deformed. She at least seems unable to separate out her own provincial farm life from these, as it were, larger than life, either historical figures or or literary figures. And and you know, she she really internalizes a lot of these romantic tropes. There's this early passage when she's trying to fall in love with Charles. It says, meanwhile, Acting upon theories she believed to be sound, she kept trying to experience love by moonlight in the garden. She would recite all the passionate rhymes she knew by heart and would sing melancholy songs to him with a sigh. But she would find that she was as calm afterward as she had been before, and Charles seemed neither more loving nor more deeply moved. Isn't that wonderful? And that's how she lives her life. She's always trying. She knows what she wants to be in some way. And she tries to be that thing, but it's always external because that's not actually how you experience love. And so she finds frustratingly that doing those things doesn't reach him or move him. But more frustratingly, it doesn't really move her. It doesn't actually get inside her. It's another more sad in a way example of that a few pages earlier on page 33 when her mother died. And this connects with a theme you mentioned quite briefly early on about her, her pride in her own virtue. So when her mother dies, says she wept a great deal for the first few days. She had a memorial picture made for herself and so on, skipping a bit. And then it says, Emma was inwardly satisfied to feel that she had, at her first attempt, reached that, the rare ideal of pallid lives, which mediocre hearts will never attain. So here she is allegedly grieving for her mother. But of course, what she's really doing is stepping outside of herself and watching herself grieve and evaluating and judging herself on it. 
and applauding herself. Look what a good griever you are. So there's something very inauthentic about this. At the end of this paragraph, it says, she became bored with this. She did not want to admit it, continued out of habit and out of vanity, and was at last surprised to find out that she was at peace and there was no more sadness in her heart than there were wrinkles on her forehead. So she can't really maintain the feeling. She wants to feel it because she admires herself for feeling it, but it's not really there. Yeah, it's almost like she's play acting where she has these roles in her head and then she's trying to enact them out in her life and then she can't figure out why things aren't the way she imagines that they ought to be. No, this is not necessarily the way things are and you certainly can't time them or plan them or experience them when you will them. There's a spontaneity here that she doesn't understand at all and she's not willing to open herself to. So she's always, in a sense, trying to control everything because she knows the kind of person that she wants to be. She's always sensing that in some way there is something out there. And sometimes it's a, a religious life or vision, the life of a nun or something like that, uh, or the life of charity, helping people. And sometimes uh, more often as it goes along, it's love and the romantic passion that'll sweep in again and change everything. And she's never willing to say, maybe a good life is actually more like what I already have, except I need to dig into it and improve it. And, you know, rather than replace Charles, for instance, or something like that, I need to talk to Charles and tell him how I'm feeling. And we knew, which is an easy thing for us to say right now, of course. And at this time, I think, I don't know how many husbands and wives actually talk to each other. Perhaps it was an extremely rare thing. And in fact, I think part of Flaubert's compassion for her is that he realizes that. And he said at one point, in fact, in a letter, I think that uh, there are Emma Bovary's uh, thousands of them all over France. This tremendous suffering that she's experiencing is really... It's due to some of her character features, certainly in a certain way, but it's also largely imposed on her by the way society is right now. There's just no options for people like this. I feel a little torn about that myself. So I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for Emma because she's so desperate to be happy and that's such a human thing and it's completely understandable. And I think I absolutely agree that her options are very limited. She is not forced into a marriage, but she is kind of handed over to someone that she doesn't really know. That would have been true for most women in her time period. And I think she feels trapped in that. But I also feel that she's sort of unwilling to take any responsibility for her own happiness. It's like she's always waiting for something to happen or for someone to make her happy. I think that's a large part of what goes wrong with her life. But she also, you kind of see all of these missed opportunities for her. So one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is that she does have a daughter. I think a couple years into the marriage with Charles, she gets pregnant and she has a a young girl and she didn't want a girl. She, she had this like real, very, I mean, typical of Emma, she had this very romantic image of having uh, this young boy and it was, it was all worked out in her head. And then it was a girl and she was immediately disgusted because again- Yet another disappointment. Yeah, it was just another disappointment. She, she really kind of turns her back on her daughter right away. And she's kind of never interested in her, never really develops any kind of motherly love or affection. At that point, as a reader, I, I started to be a bit judgy, to be honest. I was like, this is your daughter. Because 
she didn't try. That, to me, was somewhat telling of her character. She, except at the very beginning, she never really tries for a relationship with her husband either. And she just doesn't know how to do... Her, her thought is always of escape. You know, her strategy is, is never digging in and improving, but always escaping from the, the dismal reality that surrounds her. You brought up the daughter in connection with... You were saying something about her not taking responsibility. And I think that's such an important theme because, first of all, she doesn't take responsibility for the daughter at all, nor does she seem to desire to have much to do with the daughter, which is so sad and so ironic, given that she's floundering about looking desperately for some sort of a meaning in life or a role that can make her feel fulfilled. And here's this child dependent on her. And you'd think that surely that could at least go some distance to playing that. It doesn't ever seem to occur to her that that could be the kind of role that could bring fulfillment. And Maybe because, and this is a bit of a speculation, and, and it's a bit hard on her, but I, I think, as you say, we can't avoid being somewhat judgy of her. She does bring a fair bit of this on herself in one way or another. She just seems to have an impoverished imagination where the only images that she has of possible good lives and good roles are the ones that she got from books and so on. She can't get anything else from inside or make up something for herself. I think that's right. And it's unclear how she gets to be that way but but she definitely is that way and she doesn't seem to have any conception of love as requiring discipline of any kind in particular a disciplining of the passions and love as having a kind of daily self-sacrificial character she's sort of waiting for Charles to do something to her. Just like I think she's waiting for the kid to be like really cute or be something that's going to move her. And it never happens. And so in both cases, she's just left with this empty center, you know, this feeling of, of disappointment. I do think that this is clearly a failure on her part. And I think all of this disappointment, it just grows in her. And so this hole at the center of her person, it keeps getting bigger. And then what does she try to do to fill the emptiness? Well, she turns to the affections of other men. But then she falls right into the trap of Rodolphe. And I wondered what you made of her feelings for Rodolphe. Do you think any of that was was genuine on her part, or is she role-playing? What's going on there? I'm going to take the harsh view that none of it is genuine because I'm not sure that she's really capable of genuine, profound feeling. But I do think that she thinks it's genuine, at least for some time. She, she plays a role and she fools herself into believing it. But it's never, of course, good enough for her because she has these exalted images of romantic love. I mean, she has really swallowed wholesale, you know, the romantic ideology that love is this quasi-divine thing. It plays the role that religion might have played in a person's life. And so when you're in love, you should be happy all the time and things should be amazing all the time. And if they're not, you can just conclude this isn't love. Just to read a short passage, uh, she, this is where she said to herself again and again, I have a lover, a lover, reveling in the thought as though she had come into a second puberty. At last, she would possess these joys of love, that fever of happiness of which she had despaired. And this is Rodolphe, of course. She was entering something marvelous in which all was passion, ecstasy, delirium. A blue-tinged immensity surrounded her. Heights of feeling sparkled under her thoughts. And ordinary life appeared only in the distance, far below, in shadow. 
in the spaces between those peaks. Then she recalled the heroines of the books that she had read. And it goes on from there. But of course, here she is in the middle of this again, not feeling her own feelings, but thinking about the women in these books. I don't think she ever really feels that strong passion, but she's so desperate to feel it. She, she feels that she ought to, and that's the only thing that can save her life. When we were sort of preparing for this, you asked me a question about why was it that she consummates with Rodolfo when she doesn't with Leon? And I thought about that a lot, and I sort of looked over the structure of the book again, and it seemed to me that she's constantly trying experiments to fix her life. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, the experiments always take the form of some kind of an escape. That's, that's her only idea for fixing things. And the experiments grow increasingly intense or severe. So she tries the convent and that doesn't work out. She tries marriage and pretty soon decides that's not going to work out. So she tries a flirtation with Leon, but she's not ready to try the full affair yet. Because what she's hoping is, you know, simply an emotional affair, a kind of flirtation will be enough to fill that void. And of course, it doesn't. So then by the time she gets to, to Rudolph later on, that's when she essentially is ready to go to the next step. And you can see the same thing, interestingly, happen even with uh, in the theme of suicide, because, of course, she commits suicide at the end of the book, but she almost does once before. It's part of this cycle of each time around, you know, it, it gets more intense and she goes further than she did last time, hoping that this time it'll be far enough. The fascinating thing about Flaubert, when she describes the end, when, uh, you know, she goes to him looking for money, looking to borrow money to to pull her out of this financial pit that she's in. And he says no, and she seems to realize, well, he never really loved me, I never really loved him, it was all just a sham, and so on. She she formulates the idea of suicide as the next possibility for escape, and she's very excited about it. She's miserable in one moment, and then in the next, when that a form of escape appears to her, she feels almost happy. And it's very similar, I think, to what she seems to feel when, when Rudolf uh, presents himself to her. Here's this chance for escape. I, I almost had it with Leon, but I didn't, and nothing really happened, and nothing changed. I see what I need to do. I, I need to go further. I need to have a full-blown affair with a man. And here's a man that wants that, and this is going to fix everything. And this is what she lets herself believe, you know, again and again throughout the book. It's interesting because it helps to explain something that otherwise is sort of inexplicable, and that is sort of the degree of her self-deception. I mean, I think human beings are all more or less self-deceived, but the level to which she seems self-deceived is is pretty extreme. And if we focus on the fact that she is so hell-bent on happiness, this this very constrained and narrow and somewhat absurd idea of happiness, but she's so obsessed with happiness and she's really willing to do whatever it takes to a certain extent. It distorts her perception of reality because she doesn't want to see things that are going to present themselves as obstacles to that happiness that she's seeking. And I think, you know, I think that's a very human thing. It's a very human and understandable thing. But for her, it's a it's a very heightened tendency. I think that her vision of happiness is, is incredibly selfish. I think this also explains the fact that she never seems to feel guilty. This contrasts with some of her heroines, you know, um, if, you, if you think about the, the story that's on the dinner plate, you know, she publicly repented and joined a convent and, and felt real compunction. Um, but that's forever missing in Emma. And I think even when she is 
falling for Rodolphe, she's she's constantly telling herself, look, haven't I suffered enough? Look at all I suffered in not going with Leon. And, and look at all that I've suffered being this bored and lonely housewife. I deserve this, which is funny given how little she's actually suffered for others. I mean, she has legitimately suffered in her life, suffered disappointments, but she's never really suffered for another. And she never seems to think about other people's suffering. She's not aware of it. It's not on her mental landscape at all. Rodolphe is just like her and being completely irresponsible and never taking responsibility for anything. There's that fascinating moment when he leaves her and he writes her the letter. And at the end, you know, he ends the letter saying something like, how did this happen? Whose fault was it? Was it my fault? Certainly not. It was fate. Like, he blames everything on fate. We know it wasn't fate. It was him deliberately, very consciously concocting this scheme and these machinations to seduce her. But at the end of it, that's the story he tells her. And I think that's the story he tells himself too, which of course completely aligns with her view of things because she also thinks that love is a matter of fate. It just comes into your life. You don't try, you don't make it happen. It's just this amazing thing that happens when it's ready to happen. So they both see the world, I think, in a certain way, and it relieves them both from their own perspectives of any sort of responsibility for the, the harm that they've done. Emma and Rudolf, their love affair, it doesn't last very long because he pretty quickly becomes bored with her, but also I think begins to find her oppressive. He just is sort of looking for a torrid, pleasing love affair, and, and she's... She's bringing more baggage, as it were, and and I think he he pretty quickly gets sick of that. Which is profoundly unfair of him, because that's exactly what he uses to get her to begin with. He appeals to that baggage. He's well aware of it. But you're right, that is what he reacts against later on. He gets tired of it quickly. I'm just looking on page 167. This is kind of like his internal thoughts. Emma was like all other mistresses, and the charm of novelty, slipping off gradually like a piece of clothing, revealed in its nakedness the eternal monotony of passion, which always assumes the same forms and uses the same language. He had little faith in their truthfulness. One had to discount, he thought, exaggerated speeches that concealed commonplace affections, as if the fullness of the soul did not sometimes overflow in the emptiest of metaphors, since none of us can ever express the exact measure of our needs or our ideas or our sorrows, and human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we beat out tunes for bears to dance to when we long to inspire pity in the stars. So this is his internal monologue after she is like, gushing. Oh, I love you so much. I can't do without you. I long to see you. I'm torn apart by all the fury of my love. He's tired of it. He's finding it monotonous. He's heard it all before. And and of course, he has said such things and not meant them. So his assumption is nobody means these things when they say them. He, he's become such a cynic. He assumes everyone internally is like him. So now he's looking for a way to get rid of her. He tries to spin it as like, Oh, well, you know, I, I can't go on burdening you, right? <laughs> like, yes, oh, right. It, it's such an unselfish thing, yes. <laughs> yeah, like, like, oh, you know. He's such a jerk. Yeah, like, like I'm this problem in your life. And when, when the honest truth is... Right, it would be so hard on you. That's right, yeah, he's, he's bored of her. So, so things go south with Rodolphe, but then Leon is back, right? There's this chance meeting, I think it's at the opera, 
after her little dalliance with religion again, you know, she, for a few days, it seems like she has this wonderful religious vision and sees universal love and how wonderful that can be and so on. And that doesn't last too long, but it's very exciting while it happens. And that's consistent with sort of her experience with religion generally, because this happened when she was a youth too. You know, she goes in for religion well, it's like anything else in her life. She goes in for religion when it's this ecstatic thing, but then when it's just your daily prayers and, and you know, the breviary and the day in and the day out and the, and the daily mass, you know, that's, that's actual discipline and sacrifice, and she doesn't want that. She gets bored. So she has another sort of religious dalliance, and then she's back to Leon. So it's almost an affair of, a, of its own sort, you know, and, and there's the wonderful sentence on page 188, once again, her using these things to feel good about herself. She persisted nonetheless, and when the volume fell from her hands, this is a volume of uh, religious writings, she believed she was filled with the most refined Catholic melancholy ever conceived by an ethereal soul. <laughs> She just can't do these things without stopping to praise herself and pat herself on the back. And not only have I had this religion, religious vision now, but I'm the best religious person. This is as good as it gets. I'm so good at this. It's so sad. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's so sad. Refined Catholic melancholy can be a powerful thing. <laughs> so, so the religious thing is interesting because when she finally consummates her affair with Leon. You know, the meeting is in a church and it's comical. It's a, it's a very comical scene because you have this priest following them around, bothering them. It's really irritating. Leon, you know, he's, he's like, he's like trying to swat this priest away like a fly. You know, the priest is like, well, don't you want to see, you know, this famous scene from the gospel? And he's, he's trying to tell them, you know, every, everything about the church. And Emma knows what Leon wants but again, there is this period of resistance. So you have that the priest is irritating Leon because he's distracting them from, you know, what he's really there to do, which is to seduce her. And she is trying to pray. She's kneeling before the statues of the Virgin. She's trying to do the kind of thing that you're supposed to be doing in church and she keeps telling Leon, you know, that he's being improper. And of course, in the end, she submits to him. I mean, do you think that these efforts on, on her part, are they genuine? Or is she, again, is she play acting? Because it does heighten or it adds this element of sin to the whole thing. Like, no, this is wrong. I'm clinging to the virgin. And then, of course, she's going to rush off into the cab with him and, and they're going to consummate their affair. That's right, in the cab of all places. No, it, it's hard for me to see it as genuine. I mean, I'm thinking, first of all, I'm going back to the prior uh, emotional affair with Leon. I'm looking at page 94, where then the pride, the joy of saying to herself, I am virtuous, and of adopting an air of resignation as she looked at herself in the mirror, would console her a little for the sacrifice she thought she was making. This is so such a deep part of her attitude, and it's a constant pleasure for her. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, even though it's a very small thing, but it's such a delicious moment for me, and I think so telling, the whole church encounter, if, you, if you'll uh, recall, after the opera, she's supposed to meet Leon at the church. Then she thinks to herself, I can't do that. That would be wrong. You know, it's all over now. And for the sake of their own happiness, he writes, they must never meet again. But then she realizes she doesn't have his address. And so what does she say? She says, oh, I'll just go to the church and give it to him myself. 
Like, that's crazy. She clearly intended to meet him all along. A person who had decided, no, I can't see him again. I'm writing this letter. I have written this letter to tell him so. Doesn't then say, I'll go to the church and meet him and give him the letter personally. That defeats the whole purpose. I think part of the seduction for both of them, frankly, is, is that it's wrong. And, and that's part of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to sin in, in such a flagrant and obvious way for, I think for her, for the sake of her happiness, for him, who really knows? Yeah, no, I would, I would say with him, we do know something crucial, which is that he's bored and he's, he is constantly, we were told that several times about him. And I think he is constantly trying to get away from his boredom and alleviate it, which would explain why, you know, having an affair is good, but the more wrong it is, the better it is. Her home would be good or going to a hotel even, but doing it in a cab right, would be even better. It's less boring. So it's a better story to look back on and so on. This is page 213. This is Leon. This is, you know, while they're in the church. It says, never had life seemed so good to him. At any minute now, she would appear charming, agitated, glancing behind her at the eyes that were following her in her flounced dress, her thin little boots, all kinds of elegant refinements he had never tasted before, and with all the ineffable seductiveness of virtue yielding. The church, like a vast boudoir, was arranging itself around her. The vaults were leaning down to gather up in the shadows the confession of her love. I think he's definitely getting off on the fact that he knows that it's wrong, and he knows that she knows that it's wrong. She is going to yield her virtue to him. I was very struck by the image of them leaving the church and immediately getting into a cab. Now, ostensibly, it's to escape this priest who's irritating them. But they consummate their affair in a closed carriage riding around Paris. I was struck by this because it seemed like the perfect image of their relationship. It's this kind of self enclosure where they're cut off and they're apart from the world. And they both are caught up in this fantasy that this love affair is going to make them complete. The, this period of time, by the way, after they consummate the love affair, there's a period of time which they actually call like a honeymoon. And it says they were so completely lost in their possession of each other that they believed they were in their own private house and were destined to live there until they died as an eternally young husband and wife. It's this completely delusional idea that this is going to make either one of them happy, but it literally involves just blocking off or closing out reality. Even the reader is excluded. You know, we don't see inside the cab. We're, we're with the audience, you know, the people on the outside watching this thing careen all over town and saying, what is that? What's going on? Where is it going? It keeps on going up and down the same street. We can't see what's happening inside. But then the honeymoon is over, right? And Emma gets bored this time. On page 257, Flaubert writes that Emma was rediscovering in adultery all the platitudes of marriage. She's just as bored and disappointed with this adulterous relationship as she was in her marriage. And at this point, that kind of feels inevitable. I mean, as, as a reader, you sort of feel like, oh, okay, well, obviously, that's how that was going to go. Once she realizes that Leon, like Rodolphe, like Charles, like Berta, her daughter, isn't going to make her happy, she's got to think about how to get rid of him. 
<laughs> That's right. The practical difficulty, which Rudolph, of course, had already faced. And then part of the irony of this is that uh, this essentially proves his prediction right. He had said earlier in his letter, well, if we stay together, you'll get bored of me and you know, it won't be good forever and so on. And it, it turns out that is true. He, he actually had maybe he didn't mean it. So it wasn't real insight. But he did say something true, at least in the letter. I think Rudolph read Emma very well. I do think that he saw her for who she was, was never really attracted to her, never really loved her as a result, was sort of just in it in it for himself. At the height of that affair, he was sort of always telling himself to, to remember who she who she really was and to not believe all this stuff that she was saying because he knew that it wasn't real. And it wasn't real. We should talk about what happens at the end. I mean, we've alluded to it, but we, sh we should probably just talk about what happens at this point in the novel. Well, it doesn't end well. <laughs> She's uh, deeply in debt, and so is Charles because of her. Somehow, Charles goes pretty much the entire book without being aware either of these financial uh, indiscretions or of the, uh, the amorous indiscretions. He just never finds out about any of it, never seems to suspect anything. Again, we don't know for sure because, you know, he's so offstage and is such a, an enigma to us. But uh, every indication is he has no idea and is completely surprised when he finds out. But she's gotten herself into, at both of them again, into a terrible situation financially. As I think we've already said, she goes to Rudolph uh, looking for a loan, hoping to dig herself out of the pit, at least temporarily. I mean, borrowing money obviously is no long-term solution, but it's all she's got. It's another form of escape for her. He says no. She is devastated. And then immediately, as I mentioned earlier, starts to sort of feel good because she forms this plan of escape. She can kill herself and she goes and obtains some arsenic. And then shortly after she takes it and dies, uh, you know, not the romantic death, I think, that she was anticipating, but a, a fairly prolonged and very unpleasant, painful death. What do you make of her suicide? Is this sort of her last... Is Does she commit suicide because she recognizes that... She isn't, in fact, ever going to be happy, so she wants to just give up now? Or is this like her final role, like her final attempt to live the passionate, exciting life that she's always wanted, like she's going to go out tremendously? Yeah, I feel like it's more like the latter, partly because that makes it so consistent with her behavior up to this point. Partly because none of these things that she enters into are the result of rational thought or planning. It's all a gut instinct. There is suddenly what appears to her to be the prospect of an escape, and she flings herself into it, and then is bitterly disappointed when she finds out that, in fact, it wasn't the escape she was hoping for. There's this really fascinating image here. At once, her situation like an abyss appeared before her. She was panting as if her ribs might break. Then in an ecstasy of heroism that filled her almost with joy, she ran down the hillside. And she runs to the pharmacist shop and she gets the arsenic and so on. And that phrase to me, you know, the ecstasy of heroism that filled her almost with joy, it so harkens back to the earlier descriptions of her, the female heroes and heroines that she imagined becoming in some way and the ecstasy that she would feel when she did. She's feeling, you know, th this is what I've been intended for all along. It wasn't that other stuff. That was all a mistake. It wasn't that. This is the role that I was meant to play. This is the way I'm going to become that romantic heroine that, that I know I am. I, I think if she had somehow survived this, she would have tried something else. She would have repeated the pattern later, but obviously this is death, so it's it's her last attempt. So so obviously the novel doesn't end well. It doesn't just end with her suicide, but things go very badly for Charles and 
for her daughter. I remember that the daughter is sent to go work in a factory or something. Like, there's no money left. And I can't, what happens to Charles? He dies not too long after that, I think. He seems to forgive her, you know? He seems weirdly not upset in the way that you would expect, at least. I mean, I think he's very sad. Oh, yeah. So he finds out, he discovers her love affairs after she's gone. I think he's like rummaging around the attic and he and he finds all of the love letters. And so he realizes that she's been having these affairs. You know, he's sad, but he doesn't seem angry. And I sort of wonder if that's because his love for Emma was adulterous. Like maybe he had some sympathy for her. I thought that was such an interesting suggestion when you first wrote that to me, because I had wondered what to make of his lack of reaction. And to me, it, it feels, again, of a piece of who he is. He, he's just lacking a certain self. He's not really all there. But I think you're right. You know, in addition to that, which the idea that he himself was an adulterer when he began, he had emotions that were illicit in some way. They were illegitimate. And it so happened that the universe arranged it so that he could pursue those, which never happened for Emma. So he got lucky in a way that she never did. And maybe he's really putting himself in that impartial place of looking at it and saying that I was no better than her in a sense. If he thought that, it's not really true because I don't think regardless of the situation, he would ever have done the things that she did. But there is a commonality there he may have recognized. What do you make of Charles's love for Emma? I mean, one of the questions that I find myself asking, having read the novel several times now, is, is there any vision of love in this novel? Like, is Charles' love for her legit? Because when we hear about Charles, it's almost always about his love for Emma. And it seems like nothing can crack this. She certainly doesn't treat him well, and it doesn't seem to impact his love for her. <laughs> and and then even when he finds out about all of the affairs. He's just as grief-stricken. He doesn't seem angry with her. And in fact, there's this incredibly striking passage in which he meets Rodolf at a tavern, and he just wants to stare at the face of the man she so loved. It's, it's jaw-dropping. And I was, I was so struck by that. And I thought, God, you know, is, is he really that far gone for her? Is Charles' love the really selfless, legitimate love in the novel? Or is he kind of just self-deceived as well? Or is it just left ambiguous? I personally find it easier or more plausible to read it as he also being a very flawed lover, but flawed in a different way. Although maybe, again, he has something in common with Emma, which is that both of them, in a way, are shielded from reality. You know, she has these romantic images and ideas of how things should be that just seem almost impervious to reality, except in practical terms, that they get struck down again and again, each experiment fails, and she tries something else, but she never goes back and adjusts her ideas. And then Charles seems to have his own love, which, as you say, is impervious to reality, even as he finds out that Emma has ruined him in more than one way, done terrible things to him. It doesn't seem to affect him, other than to make him sad and largely sad for her. So I think certainly he's more admirable than she is, or she is more deeply flawed than he is. But I don't see him as, as a positive model. I don't see Flaubert using him to present a vision of what love should be or of the good life or anything like that. It seems to me that he also is largely flawed simply by not being there, by being largely absent. And the kind of 
impervious or untouchable love that he has is if it's a good thing for love to be untouchable, it, it, it's not in that way. You know, it should be something else. We've said a lot about what happiness clearly isn't and how not to seek happiness. But I, I wonder if there's anything in the novel that's more positive. What do you make of that in Flaubert? That's a very complex question with this book. And I do think that in large part, it, there is no positive vision presented for us to simply see, here's how we should live, something like that. I think that's clearly true. So it is at least partly a matter of figuring it out. But I do think there is a lot that we can figure out that Flaubert intended us to in some way. There are positive visions here by implication. For instance, if we uh, take a larger perspective of society at large and we view the novel as social criticism, which is at least partly what's going on. Flaubert clearly has a lot of reservations about French provincial society and education and so on. And we ask, how can we prevent people from having lives like this, or at least help them not to have lives like this? An obvious thing to say would be, well, Emma Bovary needed a better education. She needed specifically more adequate models of what a meaningful life might look like. And in whatever way one is supposed to absorb those things, she clearly wasn't getting it. Maybe uh, she didn't get it in any sort of formal education system because you're supposed to get that at home, but obviously she didn't get it there either. I mean, we could also take the view that she was just so deeply flawed that she was incapable of absorbing such things. And that's sort of the most pessimistic view. And Flaubert is certainly a pessimist. There's no question about it. But I do think that if he was so pessimistic that he thought it was completely hopeless, he wouldn't bother with a social critique to begin with. You, you don't try to make suggestions about how society could be better if you think people are just utterly hopeless. So I do think that there are some ideas here about uh, how she might have been better served at a very early age. And of course, if we think of her just as an individual, or we ask from the individual perspective, what does she need or what might she have done differently? Again, a lot of it is a somewhat similar thing. Clearly, what she needs to have a better life is, in large part, at least a better picture of what love looks like or might be or might look like. That in particular, it's not a quasi-divine, miraculous tornado that sweeps in and dramatically rearranges all the furniture of your existence. It's nothing like that. It's an ongoing project. As you said earlier, it involves constant work and care every day. You know, it involves uh, paying attention to the people that you love, as Iris Murdoch would remind us. And that's something that Emma Bovary is, it really isn't good at, but she needs to do it. You know, she needs to learn. She, she needs to learn to get out of herself and uh, identify with these people around her and to perform actions, good actions spontaneously, not so she can pat herself on the back about it, but just because it, it becomes a natural part of the course of what you do. And I think that involves a kind of capacity for self-criticism, you know, and so on. And deep kind of self-awareness also that she seems to be lacking. But to go back to this picture of love for just a second, I think that today we remain largely steeped in this kind of ideology that really um, affected her quite badly as well. I mean, look at our romantic comedies, you know, look at our pop culture. Standard romantic comedies tell us, you know, that uh, they end with marriage. And once the people get married, everything's great. Uh, everything's guaranteed to be happily ever after at that point. Well, that's crazy. Right? That's just not how it works. If we get no education in how to be married, and the only education we get is how to find somebody to marry, which is what these movies are all about, it, we're going to be in her position when we get married. We're going to be at a loss and not know what to do. So the book essentially starts with her getting married quite close. And I think that's you know important that it's an exploration of that. Uh, but that ideology is so deep. 
the serendipity idea. You know, there's that terrible movie called Serendipity where it's written in the stars, right? You're going to be with a certain person and the universe will conspire to get you together and everything will be great if you find them. That's crazy. And it's crazy to tell people that. But a lot of people absorb a message like that. But people falling sort of wildly and, and passionately in, in love, that's a thing that happens. And, and I think that that's a thing that Emma wants very inordinately in her life. And I, and I think that's the kind of thing that you can't plan for and probably shouldn't seek anyway because it, it could and sometimes does really lead to disaster. But even in those cases where people undergo this experience of really falling in love and being just gaga crazy for someone. It's not sort of stable, steady love. And if that passion doesn't get transformed or transfigured into something more mature, something more stable and sacrificial and other regarding, it's obviously going to end up in the same kind of disappointment that is the stuff of Emma's experience and that Flaubert writes so movingly about. I also just had a final question. You once said to me that you thought that Emma was making a religion out of romantic love. And I think there's something to that. I just wanted to invite you to say more about that is there a vision of love that we that we should be devoted to somewhat religiously? I think that love can be one of the most profound experiences of a person's life. I would be the last person to deny that. I think it's incredibly important and, and very rich and in large part meaningful because it does involve an orientation to something and somebody that's not yourself. It gets you to look out. I mean, if you're really loving, and there's a real question about whether Emma ever does really love, if you're really loving someone, you're looking outside. It's not about you, it's about them. You know, a lot of what we're saying here is kind of platitudes, but I think that one of the functions of literature when it works is to bring out platitudes and find the truth that's actually in them so that we can uh, hear them again. Emma thinks again that love is guaranteed to make you happy. And so if she ever feels unhappy, she just takes that as proof that that's not really love at all. And let's just get rid of it. Let's throw it out. We will never find enduring love if we link it that closely to happiness. We have to accept there's going to be times when it's difficult. It's hard. It demands a lot of us. It's unpleasant even at times. We have to accept those brutal facts about love. That, that really is part of what love is. And we're just not going to have it. And we're not going to find it if we have this false image of it that we keep repeatedly looking for. I think we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much, Troy. Thanks so much for having me. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 